Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest is Alistair Newton, a regular Digest contributor on oil and other energy topics. Alistair is a former career diplomat and political analyst in the city of London, now based in Zambia, where he runs a small business advisory. Alistair, welcome back to Arab Digest podcast. Pleasure, Bill. Now look, in our last podcast with you, which is exactly three months ago, the, the price of oil was dropping like a stone. It, it went down, I think, as low as $17 in early April. But you did say then that with low prices, supply would contract along with demand and prices would rise to 40 to $50 a barrel. And here we are with Brent at around $40 a barrel. So well done, you. I think I'd have to put that down largely to good fortune rather than good judgment, Bill, because uh, I'll be quite honest, I hadn't really anticipated that it would get back to this level as quickly as it has done. But there we are. I'll take the credit for it anyway. Yes, it definitely do. Can you sketch in what's been happening in the oil market in that three months since we last had our conversation? Well, first of all, let me say this. Markets remain quite febrile, uh, and I include the oil market in that, although clearly equity markets are uh, even more so and more visibly so for sure. On the demand side, we have seen some improvement. On the supply side, clearly we've seen a couple of factors. First of all, the OPEC plus deal seems to have held reasonably well up to now at least. Uh, And that clearly has taken a certain amount of oil off the market. But secondly, and I would argue in many respects, just as importantly, given that a lot of the surplus supply was coming out of the US, we've seen pretty much a total collapse in US oil output down by about 3 million barrels a day now. Uh, A lot of it, of course, being from the shale sector. Now, how much of that is a result of COVID-19 per se? How much is a result of price? And how much is a result of just economic stresses in the shale sector is a very open question. Um, And I don't think I'm expert enough even to begin to answer that. But clearly supply and demand have both helped to push Brent back to actually just under 40 as we speak. Um, WTI, even WTI, normally lagging uh, three or four bucks behind Brent, managed briefly to get over 40 uh, for, I think, about a day this week. But also, I would say this, market sentiment. Investors are continuing to look for reasons to be optimistic, even where those reasons, in my view, do not exist. And I do think that actually the price is probably a bit ahead of where the supply-demand curve would normally have it, based on sentiment. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a wrong thing. But it does say to me that the risks to the price are not at the moment skewed to the upside. They're probably pretty symmetric. It could go up or down from here, even if we don't get some other exogenous factor coming into play. Let me ask you, because you've mentioned that U.S. shale and, and, and how little is coming out of U.S. shale now. It's been hammered, basically. And some will see this as a, as a Saudi victory. Do you see it that way? Well, if it is a Saudi victory, it's a Pyrrhic one, in my view, Bill, because Brent crude at 40 bucks a barrel is at roughly half the price that the Saudi Arabia needs to balance its budget. And, you know, is this a price which Saudi Arabia really wants to pay to squeeze the U.S. shale market, which was already in considerable economic troubles, as I mentioned earlier? 
Uh, and who's to say how long it's going to last as well? It, we simply do not know how much longer COVID-19 is going to be, to be quite frank, playing havoc with the world economy in a way which we haven't seen for literally decades. Where the world economy is today is much more serious than was the case after the collapse of Lehman Brothers. We could yet see low prices for a considerable period of time unless supply gets cut still further. We do live in a, in a very strange world indeed with forecasts about the future basically hazarding guesses because of the unprecedented circumstances in which we find ourselves. The Saudis could find themselves having to sell oil significantly under their balanced budget uh, point for a long time to come yet. Saudi Aramco it very much operates at the discretion and some would say the whim of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. How would you rate it and his performance in managing the twin challenges of the COVID-19 recession and the oil price war? Well, let's cut away from oil for a moment because I, I think it's worth mentioning, given the confirmation which we had earlier this week, the cancellation of the Hajj to all intents and purposes as far as non-Saudi um, Hajj participants is concerned this year. This is yet another blow to Saudi Arabia's economy, already reeling under the combined stress of COVID-19 per se, and of course the much lower oil prices, not all of which, let's recall, is down to COVID-19. Let's just keep in mind that at the start of this year, none of us was thinking about COVID-19 at that time. Brent crude touched 70 bucks a barrel very briefly after the assassination of Hazim Soleimani. Uh, but basically, it was on a downward trend even then. And before COVID-19 became anything remotely resembling as serious as this has turned out to be, let's say sometime around the end of February, we had Brent crude down at 50 bucks a barrel. So um, what one has to say to start with is that in the circumstances, getting it back to 40 is not so poor a performance by the major oil producers, albeit that they perhaps have had a bit of fortune along the way as well. I think the OPEC plus agreement, which I mentioned earlier, has had an important impact, probably as much psychological as substantive, nevertheless, not to be underestimated. So from that respect, I think that uh, both Saudi Aramco and whoever makes the decisions for Saudi Aramco, which I think is a topic we may be returning to shortly, have actually done reasonably well. Um, having said that, uh, as I say, I think they've, they've also been able to benefit from a certain amount of good fortune outside of their control. Saudi Arabia, of course, does still have problems with COVID-19, but then Saudi Arabia is far from alone in that. I don't think Saudi Arabia's overall performance has been at all bad. The um, Aramco takeover of SABIC, the Saudi Basic Industries Corporation, it feels a little bit like a shell game with Aramco borrowing $70 billion from the public investment from the PIF to finance the takeover. A good move for Aramco? Hmm. Well, I think the, <laughs> my honest answer to that is time will tell. Uh, it's not at all clear whether it's a good move or not until we see how... Uh, the acquisition actually beds down in practice. But let's consider some of the key elements uh, behind this and also look, at, uh, as I intimated earlier, we may well do, at the decision-making process in Saudi Aramco. 
I'm sure, Bill, that neither you nor any of the Arab Digest subscribers tuning into this podcast need to be reminded that Saudi Aramco has long been the favoured vehicle of a succession of Saudi leaders who have actually wanted to get something done. It is generally seen as being by far and away the most efficient agency, whatever you want to call it, in Saudi Arabia for actually delivery. And that includes a lot of activities in which it has been involved over the years, which have not been uh, in the petrochemicals sector, in the hydrocarbon sector. It actually is pretty good at achieving objectives on behalf of the Saudi leadership, which does not mean to say that it continues to make question, decisions of commercial uh, um, dubiousness. In fact, it makes a lot of very good decisions commercially. But it also has to make decisions which are political. Now, whether those are made by the board per se or the board in liaison with the ruling elite in Saudi Arabia or indeed by the ruling elite, um, which is a polite way of saying these days Mohammed bin Salman, um, is open to question, of course. Nevertheless, the decisions get made. As far as this decision is concerned, I think it's probably a mix of the two. Saudi Aramco has aspired openly for some time now to get into downstream activities. And I think when uh, its senior president, Abdulaziz Al-Gwidani, said that the acquisition was entirely consistent with this, he was actually absolutely spot on. So this shouldn't come as a particular surprise to us. However, uh, on the other hand, we can also say quite clearly that the decision is also consistent with Mohammed bin Salman's stated aim of expanding Saudi Arabia's involvement in downstream, in chemicals, in petrochemicals in particular, as part of his, frankly, horribly stalled in most respects, Vision 2030 agenda. So I can't help but feel that, you know, whether Saudi Aramco really wanted to do this or not, there was almost certainly some political pressure on them to move in this direction. And of course, it would not have happened in any case without MBS signing off on it. I think we can be absolutely categorically sure about that. Uh, as far as borrowing money to do this is concerned, I think there's, there's two ways of looking at that as well. On the one hand, very simply, if you are going to be borrowing in order to acquire capital assets at this time, that in principle is not a bad thing, given the very low cost of money generally. Borrowing costs at pretty much all-time lows. Um, buying capital assets clearly makes a lot of sense in principle. However, let's also keep in mind that Saudi Aramco is actually borrowing money for current expenditure. And this was uh, certainly made clear just a, I think either yesterday or the day before when the CEO of Aramco was speaking at a, a conference and admitted that Saudi Aramco was going to have to borrow money to pay the dividend which it was obliged to put on the table in order to generate sufficient interest in the IPO to satisfy the Saudi Arabian leadership. So this is not just a question of borrowing money to acquire capital assets. It's also about buying money to, borrowing money to pay off today's debts as well. 
And one has to question that, particularly with Brent crude at the sort of price it is at the moment. And Aramco's profits down by 25% in Q1 when actually the price of oil was reasonably healthy. And with no degree of certainty, as I suggested earlier, about where the oil price is going to go from here on. Now, the Aramco CEO coupled his remarks by saying that he was, and I quote, certain that the worst is definitely behind us as far as COVID-19 is concerned. Now, I think that's a pretty bold call under the circumstances where we today, this week, have seen a record number of new cases in America and where there is genuine concern even before this first wave of COVID-19 is over that at least the Northern Hemisphere may be afflicted by a second wave come Q4 of this year, which could drive the oil price down yet again. So I don't think this was an entirely commercial decision. I think there was some politics behind it as well, uh, which means that you know, there's another reason just to question uh, the wisdom of this acquisition at this time. But as I say, I think we need to reserve judgment and see how it works out in practice. Certainly one thing, it was a bold move. Well, now you mentioned Vision 2030 and you used the phrase horribly stalled. Uh, you also mentioned uh, what's happening elsewhere. In fact, there's been spikes in Saudi Arabia, a second wave coming, how this may impact. I'm just wondering, really, given all of that, what sort of impact this is going to have on Saudi Arabia, considering that Mohammed bin Salman's efforts to separate the economy out from its utter dependence on oil is, is stalling out? Well, yes. <laughs> uh, clearly, as I, as, as I did say earlier, I think Saudi Arabia has got probably more than its fair share, to be honest, of economic uh, challenges at this time. But Saudi Arabia is far from alone with, in that, which again becomes a big problem for Saudi Arabia, because as long as other countries are suffering economically, which means basically most of the rest of the world at this time, and as long as we are dragging our way through a horrible global recession with, uh, the, as the IMF remarked earlier this week, only China of the big economies likely to get into positive growth this year, and even then only at a paltry 1%. Saudi Arabia has a big problem economically, and there's not a lot that MBS can do about that, in my view. Now, having said that, I would have to say that I do wonder about the wisdom, assuming that the reports are accurate, uh, of chasing after what I would regard as trophy acquisitions like Premier League soccer clubs, rather than focusing on pouring Saudi's not inconsiderable reserves of wealth into trying to bolster the domestic economy. I don't get the sense behind looking for foreign acquisitions at this time when the domestic economy is suffering the travails which it is. And there could at some stage be a political backlash against uh, this sort of usage of Saudi's reserves of wealth. This, uh, yes, the, the trophy acquisitions of which Newcastle United would be, would be a, a great one from uh, Mohammed bin Salman's perspective, but perhaps not so good overall in terms of the economy. I wanted to ask you about Saudi-U.S. relations. How angry is the U.S. oil sector with Mohammed bin Salman and with Saudi Arabia? 
I think they're pretty annoyed. I think they're more annoyed than they should be because to a certain extent, the shale producers in particular and the investors in the shale producers have only got themselves to blame. You know, there's, there's been lots of over-exuberance, shall we say, in the US. And the politicians have played their part in that as well, of course, because this holy grail of energy independence in the US, which is not new to the Trump administration by any means, been there for as long as I can remember virtually um, and that's not helped matters either and, and I do feel that in some respects albeit on a lesser uh, scale that shale has kind, kind of has become rather like subprime housing in the first decade in, the, in that there's been an overinvestment in dodgy propositions clearly with more and more shale companies either closing up business or going into chapter 11 uh, with oil majors in the US cutting back on capital investment. Um, this is not a good time for the oil sector here, and we are seeing the uh, over-exuberance of the last few years coming home to roost. Um, so I, think, I do think that probably Saudi Arabia and Russia are taking a bit more of the blame than they actually deserve. Nevertheless, there's plenty of reasons for the US generally to continue to have gripes with Saudi Arabia, even though, of course, uh, Mohammed bin Salman... Uh, and Donald Trump uh, continue to have a pretty strong relationship. Question mark, Bill. I don't know the answer to this. Uh, I would leave it to somebody with more expertise in these matters than, than I have. If Benjamin Netanyahu does indeed annex a pretty hefty chunk of the West Bank, and if Donald Trump, driven primarily, let's remember, by his quest for re-election and his need to shore up the white evangelical vote in the US, which is a significant part of his base, if Donald Trump then goes on to recognise the Israeli uh, annexation of the West Bank, I just wonder whether the MBS-Kushner-Trump relationship can survive that. That is an interesting question, and, and we will we will await the outcome, uh, as everyone is, on the decision that Netanyahu does take uh, July 1 or indeed later in the summer about annexation. I wanted to ask you about a colleague of yours, Christian Malek, who's head of oil and gas research for Europe, uh, the Middle East, and Africa at J.P. Morgan. And he said recently that the price of oil could hit $100. I wonder what you make of that, but also, where do you think the oil market is headed? Toward a good place or to a dead end? Well, I, I worked very closely with Christian at Namura uh, for several years, sat literally four desks away from him for, for quite a period. So I had a lot to do with him, even when we weren't actually talking to clients together. I have a huge respect for him. Now, by his origins, he's actually an equity analyst. And although being a political analyst in the city of London is hard enough, compared to being an equity analyst, it's political analysis is a piece of cake because there's very few of us. Uh, there are many equity analysts and a lot of them are very good indeed. But being good, particularly in this era of the sort of financial regulatory situation where these guys have to exist these days, being good of itself is not enough. You also have to get attention. Now, far be it from me to suggest that Christian is simply doing this to attract business because I think there is a legitimate argument which puts Brent crude at 100 bucks a barrel within the next 12 months, let's say, uh, or even within the next four and a half months if Donald Trump decides as part of his re-election bid that starting some sort of 
further conflict with Iran would be in his personal best interest. That could quite easily see Brent heading back towards 100 bucks a barrel. Um, nevertheless, whilst I would far be it from me to disagree with Christian, who is far more expert about oil than I am, I would be very cautious about uh, suggesting that we're going to see oil at anything like that price in the near term. Because as I suggested earlier, I think the risks are skewed in both directions. And we could quite easily see the price softening still further. And especially if we get this second phase, um, round of COVID-19 in the latter part of this year. Where I think it's going to go, I think, first of all, it's going to continue to be quite febrile. We're going to see relatively small scale market movements driven by supply, demand, sentiment. Um, what Donald Trump says next, you know, does he start a trade war with Europe or escalate an, actually an existing but low key trade war with Europe, to be more accurate, as he was, as he was threatening to do just earlier this week? Um, where do we go with um, just economic recovery generally? How serious is the ongoing first wave of COVID-19 in the US going to prove to be? Uh, how serious is the COVID-19 situation in China right now? And can the OPEC plus deal actually continue to hold? Uh, we have to keep that in mind too, given how notoriously unreliable OPEC deals are and how the OPEC plus formula fell out rather badly earlier this year with Russia and Saudi Arabia in a state of almost total disagreement for the period of four or five weeks. Um, so my overall sense is that probably we, best case, we hover somewhere around the price we are now for the next few months and we'll see what happens uh, thereafter. Um, I'm still rather inclined to think that, if anything, the price is slightly skewed to the downside at the moment, personally. But I, I don't have anything really concrete to hang that on. And I do think as long as investors are looking for reasons to be positive, you could see Brent getting back closer to 50 than 40. But equally, we could see it heading down towards 30 again. And the longer term uh, future of oil, where do you see that headed? Well, that's an even more difficult question uh, to answer in many respects, Bill. Um, I do think that there is a real possibility that COVID-19 is having a significant impact on future demand for oil, pushing it downwards rather than upwards for the long term and structurally. Now, that's not to say that we have actually crossed peak demand. Maybe we have, maybe we haven't. But I do think the way we live is likely to change quite significantly in the coming years. We're going to see a lot more working from home. Overall, I think we may be living in a world where actually demand for oil is likely to go down within the next five years and where that clearly is going to have a drag on the price. Alistair, thank you so much. Pleasure, Bill. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you for listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Alistair Newton, a regular contributor to the Digest on Energy Matters. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. And if you're a student or retired, we are now offering a new rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.